Are you inspired by the expanse? Are you wondering when will humanity live that solar system spanning civilization future? When will we have belters and civilizations on, on Mars? I like to be patient about this kind of thing. And, you know, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but yet over the long term, it feels like it's going to be inevitable. And there's going to be a lot of amazing ideas and discoveries along the way to make this happen. And one of the greatest resources out there across the solar system are asteroids, but they're giant chunks of rock. How can we get at their raw materials? How can we live in asteroids? This is an idea that Professor Adam Frank has been thinking about. Now, he's a great scientist, has an author, uh, does a lot of like rigorous scientific work on nebula and things like that, but at the same time also thinks a lot about extra extraterrestrial civilizations, thinking about ways that humanity could move out into space. And we have a wonderful conversation. He is thinking about a way that you can surround a rubble pile asteroid with some kind of flexible bag and then spin up the asteroid so that you now have a cylinder that you can live inside, harvest resources from, be protected by the elements of space. It's a fascinating conversation and I highly recommend you both listen to what we talk about today, but also just like follow Adam Frank in general because he's got lots of really great ideas that many of which I had never even thought of. And this is exactly one of those. So enjoy the interview. Adam, good to see you again. Last time we talked, we were in Hawaii at the uh, American Astronomical Society meeting. And that was the last time I stepped on an airplane in like three years. <laughs> I know. That was right before right before COVID hit. Yeah. Yeah. It was breaking then. Right. And I knew that this might be the last trip I go on for a long time. And it was a good trip. It was because we were in Hawaii. <laughs> and yeah. then we were all home for two years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so when we last talked, you had published a paper about why alien civilizations have maybe not uh, sent out probes to every single star in the universe. Why do we not see aliens all around us? And you've since published some other papers on that. And and I'm going to put some links into the show notes to a bunch of the papers that are sort of on that note. But the reason I wanted to talk to you today is you've got another paper that has nothing to do about aliens, but is just absolutely fascinating. So can you can you talk about the idea? Okay, so um, the idea, the basic idea in a nutshell is can you use asteroids as space stations? Um, and this is an old idea. It's been one that sort of floated around for a while. And um, we can talk about its history if you want, but let me just sort of, you know, talk about the, the let's just get the, the basic idea is, is that, um, uh, you know, asteroids are, you know, the, there's lots of them out there. They're big. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you're looking for a place to have lots of people, rather than trying, you know, send up a bunch of metal, which you're then going to, you know, uh, put together to make a space station, why not use an asteroid? Um, because, you know, asteroids, you know, they range from, you know, uh, you know, from hundreds of meters to thousands of kilometers. And the idea is, is that you hollow one out, you spin it up, and then you live on the inside. Um, because, you know, one of the most da da dangerous and damaging things about long-term exposure to space is the lack of gravity. So using um, uh, the centripetal force to, you know, stick your feet again or get your feet to stick against a, uh, uh, you know, the inside of, of an orbiting space station would be great because you could, you know, the idea is you'd spin it up to about one third 
uh, of gravity, which is, seems to be where the body is, you know, that, that you, you don't get the harmful effects. That's also about what Mars has as well. Um, so, you know, there's all this material out there. There's all these asteroids out there. So why don't we, you know, you turn them into orbiting space stations. So the idea of the paper was to explore that idea and see whether or not it is uh, viable or not. And, you know, it's a super fun idea. Um, and yeah, so that's what we, we studied. But but I think the new spin that you put on this, because as you said, you know, the idea of living in an asteroid is as old as time at time itself. I'm sure, um, you know, there are papers going back into the 50s about hollowing out an asteroid and living in them. And, and you mentioned the gravity, but you've also got the protection from radiation. You've got all of the resources that you are building up as you are hollowing out the asteroid. It sounds like the perfect survival video game. But... Um, <laughs> But your spin on this, pardon the pun, is is you take this look at these rubble pile asteroids as a really intriguing way to make this a lot easier than boring out an asteroid. Well, here, okay, so now let's get into the history of this idea. So um, as far as I know, there was only one paper on it because I, I've been tracking this because, so okay, so my background here is the Rosinate, the best spaceship ever, from the show The Expanse. And where I really got the idea, where I really wanted to explore it was I read the Expanse series, which I will consider one of, I consider the best science fiction series of the last decade or so, or decade or two. Um, and central to that idea is, you know, the so it takes place about 300 years in the future. Um, Mars has been colonized. The, the belt, the, the asteroid belt is like the main resource um, for, you know, uh, human space activity. There's probably, you know, there's billions of people living in space now or living on Mars and then also living in the belt. And the asteroid belt is full of these uh, asteroids that have been spun up, hollowed out and spun up. Ceres in particular, which is the largest asteroid, is like the, the, the hub for the, the asteroid belt. And there's, you know, the belters are sort of the exploited resource miners of the asteroid belt. And I love that book. There's so many, I could, you know, we could do a whole show and sure, yeah, I'd be absolutely. happy to do yeah. one if you want it <laughs> on, uh, uh, you know, on this idea. And so what happened is when I was reading it and at the time also I had the, um, uh, I had a column or a blog for NPR, um, you know, I, I uh, wanted to explore whether or not this, you know, when I'm reading the book, I'm like, is this really going to work? And I actually, right. would the asteroid hold? What will the exactly will the you know? I yeah. mean, there's forces. If you take an asteroid and spin it up, you're now you know ex, you know uh, um, uh, uh, putting stresses on the rock. Will it hold up? And when I actually I, I interviewed both the showrunners and also the authors of the book, and I said, "Did you guys ever like work it out?" Because you know I did it on the back of the envelope kind of calculation, and I was like, "Yeah," you know, and I had to look up like what's the tensile strength of rock. Um, and it looked kind of marginal. And so I asked them and they said, ah, no, you know, we just, you know, we just assumed they'd do something, you know, in case they, they'd cover it in steel or something to pick yeah. it up. So yeah. we um, hardened it with the fusion drive. What? <laughs> we They hardened it with the fusion drive, which <laughs> also doesn't exist, right? <laughs> uh, there's a whole story there we could do now with the um, with the last month's uh, yeah, yeah. discover or the the, the uh, announcement of the fusion, because that's to me what's most important about fusion. Yeah. Yes. I, I, limitless cheap power. Yay. I want fusion rockets. <laughs> that's exactly the that's what I went into as well, is that like this is not about powering electricity. This is about putting one of these on a starship. Yeah. 
and starting to go faster and faster. So no, I 100% agree with Mars, you. That's, that's what makes this exciting. Yeah, you can get to Mars in like a week or two if I did that calculator or looked at the calculations correctly right. with a fusion drive. You know, when you accelerate, if you can accelerate continuously and then you flip and burn, as they say, and decelerate, yeah, Mars is weeks away, not nine months away. Um, and also you get gravity on the way. You get gravity both there and back. So again, this is really important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I'll bet we'll have a fusion probe as a test platform before we have base load electricity coming from fusion power. That's I my, would, I would that's my gamble. That. I think that's probably yeah, yeah. viable. Anyway, of course, anyway that, focus, focus, Adam, back, right, right, back to asteroids. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I had queried those guys and, you know, I was thinking about it and I always thought this would be a really interesting problem. And then there was the, the only paper I know of, and, you know, my knowledge of the literature is not vast because this is not my field, right? Astroengineering is not something I do, uh, you know, on a daily basis. But I, I came across this paper where a team, I think they were in Germany, did like the analytic calculation. They just did it, you know, pencil and paper, and they took like a, you know, the simplest case, right? You're an astronomer, right? You don't do a spherical, you do a cylindrical asteroid, and you hollow out the outside, and then you spin it up, and then they tested to see, you know, they looked to see whether or not it would work. Um, and again, that was marginal. Like, that was kind of marginal. Um, and so then what happens is, is that we have at the University of Rochester, we have Alice Quillen, a professor, one of my colleagues, whose group studies asteroids. They do really interesting stuff about actual asteroid fracturing. Um, and so I approached her and said, hey, you know, let's work on this. And she had some very talented graduate students. And so we started thinking about it and started doing the calculation. And then I had to study, I had to start studying asteroids. And that's when I realized, I didn't know this, right? And I don't study asteroids, that the majority of asteroids are not made of rock, right? We have this idea of like asteroids, they're giant floating mountains. And it turns out that the overwhelming majority of them um, are actually these rubble piles. They're actually just loose conglomerations of boulders and sand and rocks held sort of gently together by their own, um, by their own self-gravity. Uh, yeah. They're the result of other people trying to spin up solid asteroids and they fractured. <laughs> oh my God, they, you're right. <laughs> right. And then they and then they reconfigure into this rubble yeah, pile. Yeah, and yeah. that's like, it's, it seems to be, that's it. That's the outcome. You get, you smash an asteroid, you spin it up too fast. The thing tears itself apart and this is what you get. Yeah, right. right. Well, no, well, what that's actually it is, it's because of collisions, right? So the, yeah. um, so uh, the, um, af the distribution of asteroids by size, um, I believe is logarithmic so that you have very few large asteroids and those ones, you know, things that are like, you know, uh, 100 kilometers or more across. Um, and those ones really probably are rock. They are, you know, left over. They're the, they're the construction debris left over from the assembly of the solar system. But then for things that are less than like 50 kilometers or so, those are probably things that have been smashed, have gone through, you know, collisions. And then the debris from the collisions between these larger objects um, has, you know, coagulated to form the rubble piles. Um, and those rubble, so that was a shock to me that, wow, most of these things, you know, forget it. There's, there's no hope of like, you know, hollowing them out because, you know, they just fall apart. So two things. So two things. So when we started looking at this, the first thing we found was that even the large asteroids, even Ceres, probably, the, you know, you look at the tensile strength of rock. Oh, an important part of this story is we, Alice brought on um, uh, people from the engineering department. Uh, so we had a number of, of colleagues from the engineering department who you know, really study the tensile strength of stuff uh, joined us. 
And um, from those, from their work, from working with them, we found that even the large asteroids probably wouldn't hold together. You could not spin Ceres up to a third of gravity without Ceres just <laughs> fracturing and breaking apart. So bummer. Um, so that's what we were left with. Like at the first conclusion, you know, the first bit of work was like, this idea does not work. Womp, womp, womp. Yeah. Um, so then uh, this was Alice's idea was like, well, maybe what you want to do is, you know, since these rubble piles are so gently held together, you know, drive rockets into them, you know, or like, you know, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, anchor rockets in them and purposely spin them up. And when you do that, they'll very quickly start to, you know, uh, come apart. They'll start to fly apart. And the key now is if before you do that, you cover them in a expandable bag. And so then as they spin up um, and begin to fling themselves apart, now the, they're covered in this bag and eventually the bag reaches the point like a rubber band where it can't expand anymore and yank, it snaps hmm. taut. And then you've captured all of that material at the edge of, of the bag. Um, and so then now you have actually this large cylinder that can be, you know, you can take a, you know, a, 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 a one kilometer um, uh, uh, rubble pile and expanded out into this, you know, something I don't really remember exactly how the numbers scale, but it was on the order of like, you know, 10, 20 kilometer radius at a cylinder, which now has kind of concrete, uh, you know, uh, inner layer. That's really cool. Um, and, and so I guess now you're faced with a bunch of new details. The ones that the, that the space elevator folks have been struggling with, <laughs> is the tensile strength of your various, of your bag materials. So will that work? Remarkably, so we had to, the, what we were looking at was, as you said, the space elevator folks, uh, carbon nanofiber, right? So, you know, this idea, you know, car, so we've learned so much about the ability to um, molecularly engineer carbon to form these, you know, ultra thin, ultra light, ultra strong, sheets, which then can be wrapped up into filaments. Um, and this has been an idea for, for the space elevators going all the way back to Arthur C. Clarke's first book on space elevators, you know, way back in the 70s, I think it was. Um, so we used, we looked at what is known about the tensile strength of, um, of carbon nanofibers. And it turns out to work. It turns out like if, you, you know, if you could produce you know, a net of carbon nanofibers, yeah, this would actually do exactly what you want it to do. So it has the tensile strength to be able to support. First of all, you could, you know, it's it would be expandable. So you'd cover it in this mesh. Um, and then second, it would, you know, once it inflated, you know, once it was fling, flung apart and reached its, you know, maximum uh, uh, extension, then it has the tensile strength to be able to hold the whole thing together. And what was interesting also, which came out of the calculations, was that, because we actually ran simulations of this as well, is as the material, as I've sort of inferred before, as the material that's been flung apart gets captured by the bag, by its maximal extent, it's get, it gets crushed, right? There's the centripetal force, which sort of, you know, crushes it down. And so then you end up with kind of a concrete. Um, and so then this cylinder, this, this, this bag, the outer layer of the bag will be the, or of this cylinder will be the carbon nanofiber bag. But really most of it is this, you know, compacted asteroid material, which will do a lovely job of protecting uh, radiation. Did, did you find there was like a sweet spot of like the perfect size asteroid? Cause I'm sort of envisioning you want the rotation speed, you say a third gravity would be the bare minimum that you'd be wanting. 
you, and then that will define the radius of the of the spin. And then you're having to figure out how much material you're going to have. Did you like does a very small asteroid spun up one that's maybe just like a few dozen meters across or maybe a few hundred meters across? Is that a better plan than one that is kilometers across that, you know, could house a space city? Um, no, we didn't actually because the, the process, um, it, it, it doesn't really seem to matter, you know, uh, in terms of the, the, the size, it's really just how much carbon nanofiber, you know, you can, you can afford to make to cover the thing. in. Um, so, you know, either way you're going to end up with, uh, you know, pretty much cause you know, in the end, you always have to have the one third, uh, 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 gravity and the carbon nanofiber, you know, sort of has the tensile strength to allow that over a range of size scales. So I think, you know, if we can produce, an, you know, enough carbon nanofiber, you probably could make quite large space cities. Um, I believe in the paper, we started off with things that were on the order of, you know, tens of, you know, a, a, you know, on the order of 10 kilometers. And we ended up with something that had the surface area of Manhattan. <laughs> right, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, in I'm Manhattan, just... right? How many people live in Manhattan? So you could really, these things could really, and there's, there's a lot of asteroids on those scales. Like you have lots and lots and lots of yeah. asteroids that are 10 kilometers. Of 10 kilometer asteroids. 10 yeah, kilometer those. asteroids. They're all over yeah. the place. So you could really yeah. use these. And the other interesting thing about this whole asteroid idea, and this is something that Kim Stanley Robinson explored. You have these near earth asteroids that are, you know, that the ones that are dangerous to us because they cross earth's orbit. Um, and some of them also cross Venus's orbit. And, you know, one idea has always been to use these as space buses. They could be both, you know, um, uh, uh, space settlements where you have you know, literally millions of people living on them. But, you know, if they're already traveling back and forth around the solar system, then, you know, the the you could just hop on one um, because the Delta V, right, you know, always with rockets, the, the problem is, you know, the cost of fuel of jumping from one uh, you know, uh, is, is accelerating and decelerating. So, you know, you could hop on one of these and just, you know, sort of have a vacation for, you know, a month or so while it traveled out to Mars and then hop off and jump onto Mars. So, you know, th there's a nice additional uh, capacity that these uh, of, of transport um, that these asteroids also provide. I, I think about this idea of interstellar travel, these ideas of generation ships. And I think you know, generation ships at the, at the smallest scale, when you've got like a small ship and people are born die their only job is to procreate to carry on for the next generation like it's a crime against humanity right you're yeah. born you're like what is your purpose your purpose is to live in this tiny ship procreate then die and share this wisdom with your with your children that's that sounds bad but yet on earth right earth is a spaceship just a very large one and we're all born and we live our lives and die and procreate and so on and that doesn't feel necessarily like a crime against humanity. So there's going to be some middle ground here where it's like, okay, this isn't a terrible life to live on this generation ship. You have an asteroid that is 100 kilometers across, has the population of Manhattan, is traveling between the stars. That's not the end of the world, I think. So what do you think about, because there's this other line of thinking that you can extract the resources from your asteroid as you go. Yes. Do you think that that an asteroid like this could 
supply the resources for a long duration journey, maybe to another star? Yeah, I think it can. I mean, so this is right. So Alistair Reynolds, the science fiction writer, has has used this idea. And also Kim Stanley Robinson, one who, again, is, you know, so far ahead of us in so many ways. Yeah, um, Kim uh, thought of everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Aurora. I would highly recommend to your listeners um, the, the book Aurora, which I think is what you know, I've read like hundreds and seen, you know, hundreds of generation ship stories. And the great thing about Aurora. Oh, my God. I don't want to spoil her. <laughs> <laughs> but the great thing is it really explores that idea um, and particularly takes on the ethics of it, um, you know, because it is, you know, it depends on sort of what the thing is like, you know, often with these generation ships, they are small scale affairs, you know, you know, it's, it's a hard journey, right? Um, uh, and, and people are living under very constricted circumstances. But with if you really were able to do this kind of space city thing, then you're right. Then in some sense, you know, like you've already got gravity. You're if you can use the, the resources of the asteroid to, you know, uh, uh, take care of your 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 journey. Then, yeah, you're you know, maybe maybe it's not so bad because already. Yeah, do whatever you like. Yeah, because yeah. you know, that's the thing. I mean, when we look at the, the future of um, humanity in the solar system, let's just deal with the solar system for a while. All right. For me, the next. 200, 500,000 years, which is, you know, a long time, but it's also a short time in terms of, you know, human history is going to be space, right? And we're going to, I imagine that we're going to try and find every nook and cranny in the solar system where we can live. So that's why Mars becomes so interesting to us, right? Mars as a planet that, you know, maybe someday even will terraform. Of course, that will take forever. Um, but so space settlements, these rotating space settlements are actually a way of just like, ah, forget it. We don't need, like, right? There's, that's what, we don't need planets. We're just going to live on these, these settlements. Um, and so, you know, that, I see that as a real possibility that, that you know, as astroengineering becomes more possible, you know, and, you know, engineering um, astronomical objects on these kinds of scales, then, yeah, the possibility is that you can forgo planets altogether for, for living in the solar system becomes possible. And then a corollary of that is like, well, yeah, let's just have, you know, why even, why even try and colonize other planets? Let's just go to those other planets to see what's going on. And then we go to the next one and, you know, people give up on planets altogether. You know, if, if the journey is too long, wait for the plant, the stars to come close, wait for the rogue planets to come close, wait for the brown dwarfs to drift close and then just pop on over to uh, to see what's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a I mean, whatever you like the O'Neill cylinder is like I, I my saying is that gravity wells are for suckers. So <laughs> I you know, there's no if you're going to leave a gravity well, don't then go down into another gravity right. well and then have to leave that gravity well again. That's that's expensive. Instead, just stay in space. And I love the idea of the O'Neill cylinder. But as soon as I sort of as soon as construction projects in space are measured in millions of tons, I, you know, I my eyes roll. But in this idea, literally, you just take a bag. Yeah. I, like, I wonder what, like, did you, what is the mass of the carbon nanotube bag do you did you did you calculate oh, I think, you that? know i know we didn't we i don't think we did that calculation in there yeah um, yeah but it, you know but i mean like it can't that, be a lot right like it, would, it, well, be, it wouldn't be it would, wouldn't be um you know compared to like building steel cylinder or steel yeah. girders for an yeah. cylinder 
Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's exactly the thing. It's it's minuscule, right? Because that's the great yeah. thing about carbon nanofibers, which is why people think about them for um, space elevators as well, is that they're very light, right? They're, you know, like they're, they're monofilament. They're single, you know, I mean, you're going to braid them together. But, you know, you're basically talking about things that, you know, their, their strength comes from their atomic properties. So, and that was the thing. I mean, let's talk about the O'Neill cylinders for a while, right? I remember I was a kid when that study came out uh, and those first, those pictures, right? Those amazing, that was the, you know, the coolest thing about the O'Neill cylinder study, which I think is like 76, 77. I'm not, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's 77. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, the, the brilliance of that was not only the, the physics involved in it, but they hired a really good artist, a really good space artist. Cause you know, those pictures of, you know, of the, of the landscape, you know, there's like mountains and, and glistening lakes, you know, extending off into the horizon, which curves up, you know, yeah. those you just saw if you were a kid, a space, you know, space happy kid as I was back then, it was like, oh yeah, that's, that's the world I want to live in. Yeah. Um, yeah and so they fired a lot of people's imagination about what was possible uh, uh, but again, right there, you know, when you looked at them, they're gleaming metal cylinders, metal and plastic cylinders, however, you know, cause they have to have, you know, windows, um, that would allow uh, sunlight in. And that was the problem. He was like, oh, wow. Okay. Cause you know, the idea was there, well, well, we'll take asteroids and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll grind them up and then we'll, you know, uh, uh mine them for what we need. And that still might be possible. You know, when you get to, when we get to a certain level of astro engineering, maybe that is possible, but this was just a much simpler idea, a much more straightforward idea, which is to use the asteroid themselves in their form or modest, slightly modified their form as we had to do. Um, so it just seems like, you know, if you could get to this a lot faster rather than. And, and even for space mining, like I imagine, like, like you've, you've got the science fiction book here where your asteroid miners got their carbon nanotube bag. They put the carbon nanotube bag around the asteroid that they want to mine, spin it up, go inside and then just start digging yeah. around to see what yeah. they can find yeah. that the that the entire contents of the asteroid are now splayed out in front of you right. for you to sort of pick all the good stuff out of it and you know people just talk about this idea of like asteroid mining and like it's it's cool in as an idea but everything we could want is here on earth it just happens to be deep under our feet there's more metal and precious minerals here on earth than there is in in any asteroid it's just you got to get through all that rock but if you spin up a rubble pile suddenly yeah you know now you're shopping yeah yeah and you think like things that like are you know super precious metals like gold and such you know or whatever you know i mean you could just sort of you know mine along have things that just sort of move along the inner edge of that cylinder that has now been splayed out just sort of like picking through um and yeah, and sorting out the molecules, you know, the individual molecules of whatever element it is that you're, you know, or mineral that you, that you're that you're interested in. So yeah, that way it also opens up, uh, uh, you know, an enormous capacity. And I think the thing we really need to understand here is, yeah, we're talking on this is probably not going to happen for a century at least. Well, you know, a century is not a long time. I mean, it's a long time because of our lives. But what I always like to remind people of is that you know, uh, two hundred years ago. Nobody anywhere traveled faster than, say, 40 miles an hour, how fast a horse could go, unless they were falling to their death, right? And now, you know, once you had the advent of trains, you know, circa 1820, 1840, 1850, suddenly people were routinely going at 60 miles an hour. 
Um, so, you know, that was just 200 years ago that it was unimaginable to travel at 100 miles an hour. And now we're like eh, 100 miles an hour or whatever. So the idea that like, you know, this carbon nanofiber bag, which seems so crazy. I mean, it is not hard for me to imagine at all that in, you know, that by 20, you know, 2150. Yeah, sure. We'll have that kind of technology, you know, and that will be we'll be doing this. So it's it may I may not live to see it. But in the span of, you know, of, of, of the evolution of, of a technological civilization, this could be the blink of an eye until the solar system is is dotted with these things. How do you think like. This is going to get sort of weird, um, but I get these questions all the time from people, and they think about colonizing Mars, they think about colonizing the moon, they think about colonizing other places, and they're like, when are we going to have big cities on on Mars and stuff? And my and my answer is always like, Mars sucks, Mars, the moon sucks, space sucks compared to Earth. And so with our rudimentary technology today, the best we can do is is like set foot on the moon and then return home. And if we're lucky, maybe set foot on Mars and return home. But then... And that's sort of like, that's us today. And then on the other hand, you sort of think about the outcome of exponential growth into 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 1,000 years. Suddenly, the infrastructure builds up and suddenly these things become laughably easy. Right. How should we think about that? Because it's like, it's brutally difficult and eventually laughably easy. How do we sort of imagine exponential growth curves with our puny human brains like this. Well, that's why I think we just use history as the example. So my example of trains is a great example to see the things that we are just, I mean, you and I are talking to each other via a box, right? And we're, you know, do you remember, like, well, you're, I don't know how, uh, you know, you're clearly younger than I, but, you know, in 2001, Space Odyssey, which was actually before my time, um, uh, you know, there was like a video call. Oh, my God. You went into a, you know, this box and you pressed a bunch of numbers and there was a video call. And, you know, for years, everyone was like, video calls. When are we going to have video calls? And like now it's it's not even a thing. We don't think about it. It's become so dispersed. Every every device can do video calls. So using history as an example, I think, is the right thing you know, to see. And that's why, you know, 150 years, I think by the time we get to 150 years, the kinds of technologies we're already playing with today, like um, metamaterials um, uh, assemblers, you know, um, uh, you know, nano machines that can assemble themselves where, you know, basically you have a bunch of programmable matter that you would drop on the asteroid and then it just reconfigures it by itself. You know, you just go off and, you know, go get a cup of coffee or whatever, you know, come back and like, oh, there's your asteroid space station. So, you know, I think those kinds of things, now maybe some of those will fail. Like there's things that we've dreamt about forever that maybe never come to pass, but I just would not bet against um, the kinds of uh, the advances, because we're not talking about miracles here. We're not talking about warp drives, right? Like warp drive, think about warp drive is other than the Akube drive, which still has its issues, right? You know, it's not even clear you can do anything like a warp drive because, it, it, you know, it requires like exotic matter, which we don't even know exists. But this kind of thing, the carbon nanotube, uh, the carbon nanofiber bags, the um, assembler materials, the programmable matter, that's completely within the realm of possibility. There's no, fundamentally, there's no new physics there or unknown physics. So. Yeah. I mean, people ask me like, like, when are we going to build a Dyson swarm? And I say, we've already started. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. When you think about the James Webb Space Telescope, you think yeah. about the Hubble Space Telescope, yeah. think about all the spacecraft that we have out there, out there in space, powered by solar power, yeah. <clears throat> stopping some of that light from reaching deep space and doing useful work. 
that's what a Dyson sphere is going to look like, except more. Yeah. Until we've used all the power coming yeah. from the sun. It's funny, like, you know, I, you're not my therapist, but but I but I I find that people sort of level two complaints against me. On the one side, they feel like I'm a bummer that I am not sort of thinking about like the future enough or like I'm not going to be able to deliver Mars colonies in the next short term. And then on the other hand, I find people feel like I'm like a wide eyed dreamer and I need to stick to reality. Oh, maybe, a, you know, pissing people off is the is the right way. But, you know, then, you know, you're you're doing it right. Yeah. Um, but uh, now you mentioned a couple of, of science fiction books. You mentioned The Expanse. Wait, wait, can, I, can, I, can I just hit on that? Because I think you're exactly right. You're exactly yeah. where you need to be. And I, I would come count myself there as well. You know, on the yeah. one hand, you don't want to, you know, you want to be realistic about what can happen and when it can happen. This idea that we're going to have like billions of people on Mars in 50 years. Come on, give me a break. It's not happening. Right. But, you know, but the idea that like over longer people are just impatient. That's a problem over longer (laughs) timescales. And by longer, I just mean a century or so. Yeah, you might have within a century and a century and a half, you might have millions of people in space. I find that absolutely reasonable. But having millions of people in space in 50 years, no, not going to happen. Yeah. So. I can imagine the people building those cathedrals back in the 1400s and someone walking up and going like, when am I going to be able to use this thing? And like, well, not in your lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. Your grandkids right? will. That's a, that's the your grandkids. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then you have to be like, you have to be okay with that because this cathedral will exist in the far, far future, but it's not for you, Yeah. but you will play your part. Now go plant a tree. Game. I mean, this is, you know, climate yeah. change. Climate change is is exactly where we, you know, exactly the right problem to sort of set the timescale, right? Climate change is a centuries-long problem that we're going to be dealing with, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, and you're always going to have to deal with it. You're always, you know, you so, so it's like, yeah, you have to start, we have to play the long game now, which is thinking about not in terms of like the next presidential cycle, but about, you know, we have to, actually, and that's really the thing, we have to establish the, the the structures, the societal, political, legal structures to be able to take the future, you know, the, the centuries long future seriously and work towards it, agree what we're working on and work towards it or else we're never going to get there. And as with climate change, you know, it's going to lead to our doom. So, you know, it's either we either learn how to do this or we die. Well, but, I mean, you say lead to our doom, but, but again, it, it's probably the same thing is it'll lead to doom for many, many people for long periods of time and be this long, slow suffering that eventually we come out the other side of it in some result. And I think that patience for both the the good things that we want to happen in the future, but also our patience to understand that the mess we've got ourselves into is we're going to have to experience the downside of it for a long time, but we will come out the other side of it almost inevitably. Yeah, um, I'm not, that's that a whole other conversation. I mean, I can imagine, I can imagine, you know, it's, it's, it's the climate. I mean, I, the climate's not going to, I mean, humanity's not going to go extinct for sure. Um, right. But I can't, well, this is a whole other discussion that we have, but I do, I think the climate could really seriously affect our ability to have this, this kind of civilization for a long time. Right. Right. But that, that's a whole other yeah. question. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think that it's patience. I think that's it. Like, that's I think if is. I can right. talk to people more about this idea of patience. The long now, right? That the long it. now. Yeah. The long now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go plant a tree yeah. that you won't see right. it grow. 
Right. Yeah, I do like that idea. Now, before we go, you mentioned um, uh, the Expanse series, the Leviathan Wakes, those books. Uh, you mentioned Alistair Reynolds. I'm actually reading Re- Revelation Space right now. Oh, as loving it. Yeah. What a great book. Yeah. Um, what are some other science fiction books that people should read to get into this state of mind to be patient about this exciting future. Well, I think, okay, so so certainly the granddaddy of them all is the Red Mars series, right, by, by Kim Stanley Robinson. So somewhere around the eight, and Kim Stanley Robinson really was the one who launched this, was the idea of, you know, we have lots of books that are space operas, you know, uh, you know, 30,000 years in the future, or Star Trek, which is, you know, only a few hundred years in the future, but we were, you know, we're zipping around the galaxy. But uh, the Red Mars, Blue Mars, Green Mars series was really the first one to take, which was published in the 80s by, by Kim Stanley Robinson, to take the settlement of the solar system seriously, to focus not on some galactic empire, but what I think is much more realistic for the next thousand years, um, which is the... Um, the this you know the, the settlement of the solar system and so red the, the red mars series i think is must reading for anybody who wants to go down this road yeah 100 percent agree great series yeah all right well and pleasure t- talking to you again Always. uh i look forward to your i've got a notifications anytime you publish anything on google scholar i check it out so uh, i look forward to whatever great idea you and your teams come up with next i look forward to the to your thinking well, it's always a pleasure talking with you. We're clearly on the same page on a lot of things. So it's just fun. Every time we talk, it's super fun. Now, if people want to find out more about what you're doing, what's the best place to go and do that? Uh, well, you know, Twitter. Anywhere else. And also, um, uh, I have an author page on Facebook. So those are the two places to look for me. Okay. And The Atlantic. Perfect. I've been read- I'm, I'm been writing a lot for The Atlantic. Uh, I'm actually doing a story on The Atlantic on the asteroid thing. That's my next story. So Wonderful. That sounds great. All right. Well, thanks again. Take care and good luck. Take care. Signing Bye-bye. off from the Rotsonate. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. Take care, Fraser. You can also get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 55,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Josh Schultz and Andrew M. Gross who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe.